Hello, and, and and welcome to the to the Lars Resort, which is still a podcast. With me, Lars Sievertson, brought to you by Betson. We're we're back. We're, it's it's been a minute, you guys. It's been a minute. We're, we we've been, the the resort has been closed for renovation for 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 a good while. Um, how best to explain this? When 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 we started this thing, and I decided to like go pretty big on the resort metaphor. Uh, maybe you think what what kind of resort will we end up being will it be you know like the white lotus where, where the resort is full of you know depravity and white people or or, or will it be more like the Firefest, where where things go all wrong but, but so far uh it's actually been neither of those so far it's it's been like one of those cruise ships where there's an outbreak of some kind of virus or allergy, so they're not allowed to dock anywhere, and they just have to sail around uh, with lots of people being ill. Like a plague ship has uh, is what we've been. I've I've had the COVID, everyone, which uh, is it's, it's not been serious in the same way. There's enough people who've had very serious COVID, uh, not one of those, but it has uh, left me sort of. Um, you know, there are certain illnesses and accidents and injuries you can easily pod through. Uh, but the COVID uh, led to me sort of losing my voice a number of times and just a very powerful lethargy. Now, um, feeling sleepy and out of energy and not having a voice are just two things that are not conducive to good podcasting. So decided I had to take a step back a little bit, uh, wait for that to resolve itself. But we are fine now. We are all good. So so let's crack on and, and get this show properly on the road. Let's just say the first two episodes was like a, a proof of concept more than anything. The, the resort starts now, I've, I've decided. Now, speaking of things that are ill, uh, deficient, uh, you know, uh, hasn't lived up to expectations... <laughs> Tottenham Hotspur, yes. <laughs> let's let's talk about Tottenham. I, I see no way around it. Uh, the the way things are at, at at the moment, a lot of things have happened. Obviously, <laughs> since we tried starting this podcast, uh, and there are several subjects we can go and maybe we'll revisit some. Maybe actually, this international break is a good time to sort of uh, just go through a few things. But got to talk about Tottenham after the Antonio Conte meltdown. Um, following the 3-3 draw at Southampton, where they were, you know, not a great performance, but they were a few minutes away from getting three very tidy points in that battle for, for fourth place. And uh, then they conceded a slightly daft penalty and got one point instead, and that, uh, <laughs> I don't know, for some reason was enough for Conte. Uh, I don't need to read the quotes. You've all seen the quotes. You know what he said. You've seen the backlash and the, the comments and stuff so far. Um, I, I, though I will off the bat say that I think we sometimes we can make a mistake in prescribing too many sort of Machiavellian intentions behind this. I mean, what, listening to the full recording of the presser, it just seems like he kicks off. It, it's the, it's the question from mild mannered Jack Pitbrook about. I mean, he's kind of intimating maybe Conte's situation is. Uh, is causing some uncertainty, uh, which seems to set him off more than anything. The idea that uh, the the press are creating alibis for players, as he says, and and and, and I think he was, I think he was just an angry man, really, <laughs> for some of that. He was just, you know, it's not going well at Spurs. He's not able to make the team play the way he wants to. He's angry. He's just kind of lobbing hand grenades in every direction. But still, it does. The fact that we're there, we have this sort of lame duck Tottenham manager, the angriest lame duck there ever was, 
it's a good it's a good opportunity to have a chat about Spurs, isn't it? I think. And uh, really, what this is with Conte specifically, it's a huge case of of the scorpion on the frog. You know, we we, we talk of the history of the Tottenham, as Giorgio Chiellini put it. But the, the history of the Conte is also pretty clear. Like, he comes into clubs, he has a big impact, he then gets annoyed with the club because they won't give him every single thing he wants, then he creates a stink, and then he leaves, usually collecting a huge payout in the process. This is the sort of Conte cycle. If We've seen it before, I'm sure we'll see it again. And it is what's happened at Spurs. He came in, had a very big impact, dragged the team to fourth last season, um, which was no small achievement, I thought. Getting Champions League last season was really important for the club, and, and they were in a very bad position when he took over. He deserves credit for that. Um, this season, there have been setbacks. The team's gotten worse. Conte started whinging. He's made his own position now completely untenable. Is is very likely to get paid to go away before the season ends, certainly the way it looks this week. Now, I suppose... I suppose we should have seen this coming because we're all familiar with the fable of the scorpion of the frog. I hope the scorpion and the frog. If you're not, I mean, the, the, there's a scorpion. He wants to cross a river, but he can't swim. So, so we asked the frog, you know, Mr. Frog, can you carry me? The frog is not sure about that because, you know, the scorpion might sting him, might kill him. The scorpion says, well, you know, why would I do that? You know, I, I sting you, we, you, you drown, we both die. Like, that's terrible. I wouldn't do that. And the frog says, yeah, that kind of makes sense. So it's so a... Gets on the frog's back, they start crossing. Halfway through, the scorpion stings him! Ouch! And and the frog gets poisoned, he starts to die, he's going to sink, they're drowning. And he asks, why? Why have you done this, Mr. Scorpion? We're both going to die. And he says, well, can't really help it, can I? It's, it's in my nature, says the scorpion. And now they're both drowning. And additionally, the frog has to pay the scorpion four million pounds, I guess. Uh, it's very harsh on the frog, but that's just the way it works, I guess. And, and and the scorpion will somehow be transported back to the shore where he can wait for a higher standard of frog to, to carry him across the next time, is, is how it works in this particular fable. Now, b- because before stinging the frog, he did make, make it clear the scorpion halfway through the crossing, you know, when things were still going okay. The scorpion was very clear to the frog that, you know, he is really used to a higher standard of frog. I mean, this particular frog that he's on, it's a bad frog, you know. It's, it's not. It's been, it's been a very unsuccessful frog these last 20 years, and the scorpion has stung superior frogs in the past. Now, I, I, I think, again, I think it can be a mistake to take Conte's exact words too seriously. I think there was a lot of frustration there. But, you know, the, the, there was the thing about history, which I kind of kind of made may prick my ears up you know the, the 20 years there's the owner and they never win something and, and okay let, let, let's do that let's go back 20 years let's go back 20 years to 2003 where were Tottenham in 2003 2003 they finished 10th the year after they finished 14th the year before 2003 also known as 2002 they finished 9th and in fact let's let's just list their league finishes in the years leading up to 2003 they finished 9th 12th 10th 11th 14th and 10th like, are you catching my drift here I, w- I would like to try to put the modern tottenham into a bit of perspective because i've spent w- one of the things when you got the covid is that you're too knackered to do anything useful uh, so you do end up just lifting up your phone and looking at social media a lot because that that's something you do have the energy to do and, but, of course, that makes your situation worse because you see some truly hysterical takes uh, on the internet from, from the Tottenham fandom during this period. You know, Le- Daniel Levy has destroyed the club and all this. The club is gone. Uh, you know, all this stuff. And, and, and it might just be me 
showing my age here, but it just isn't possible for me to look at the present day Spurs and think that this is just, ah, oh, the club is destroyed, it's exploded, it's all gone, it's very bad. Obviously, performances re- recently have been poor. Obviously, the season has been no fun because the the team has been playing very turgid football uh, led by an overpaid manager who doesn't want to be there. Like, that's not a fun thing for fans to, to experience. You know, it is something that you're paying some pretty hefty prices at the uh, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and you turn up to see the team sort of sit back and try not to do anything in the first 45 and then try to fluke a goal from a set piece in the second half and, and hope no one screws up at the back. Like, this isn't fun. Like, <laughs> there's no... Why Why would you pay for this? And then in the post-match press conference, if anyone dares suggest that maybe there's an alternative approach the club could take, the Conte was going, ah, well, they, they don't know how to win. This is the only way. I Only I know. Uh, this is infuriating, really, for fans, right? So I'm not begrudging anyone their fury that's fair enough and stuff like just the gutless nature of the performance against AC Milan the the total complacency showed by the players against Sheffield United you know it's it's not been good and and it is humiliating for a club to have a manager who's quite so open about thinking he's too good to be there that really shouldn't be tolerated you know you you don't want to be here fine go somewhere else like that's how that conversation should have gone but the big picture situation right now is would be my point, is actually not that bad. And the reason I say this is simple. It's it's the history of the Tottenham. You know, since 2010, since 2010, Tottenham have finished fourth or higher in the league seven times. Now, in the 19 seasons before that, the 19 seasons before 2010, how many times did Tottenham finish fourth or higher in the league? No times! Zero, as many times as my dog! Like, before 2010, the last time they finished higher than fourth in the table was 1990. To get to seven top four finishes, which is what Spurs have done in the last sort of 13 seasons, to get to that number of finishes, fourth or better in the league, before 2010, you've you've got to include every season going back to 1967, so 42 seasons, uh, unless my maths is is, is bad. The point is, this is the modern history of Spurs. Fourth or better in the league seven times in 42 years, and then fourth or better seven times in 12 years. In the simplest possible terms, which is in terms of winning more games than you lose, this is one of the more successful periods in the club's history. Now, of course, some of you may right this very minute be screaming at your preferred podcasting device that there have been no trophies, and trophies matter, and yeah, absolutely. So so maybe you're one of those guys who preferred it in the late 90s when Spurs did win a trophy, but mostly finished 10th, you know, people are different. I, I, I see... I mean, I see the way people freak out now after a few defeats, and I think back to like the 2003-2004 season, so 20 years ago, Tottenham lost 19 games in the league that season. That's half their league games. Every other game in the league, a defeat. Can you imagine what Twitter would have looked like? (laughs) You know, the way people react now to a downturn in form for Tottenham. And I personally don't think I would judge this last decade of Tottenham very differently if they'd fluked the League Cup or won an FA Cup. Yeah, it's a nice moment. It it, it shuts up uh, annoying people on the internet, which is obviously important. But, you know, winning the league or the Champions League, obviously very different. But, you know, the last time Spurs won the league was 1961. So this is not something that's been happening a lot recently. And my point is, when I see stuff about on social media about how Danny Levy has ruined the club and everything is terrible, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea. What are you comparing to? 
the club right now to. There's really nothing in Tottenham's history, at least post-1980, post the mid-60s, to suggest that this club has some kind of divine right to fight for titles consistently. That's just never been the case. Now, it's often been a lot more fun <laughs> to, to, to pay your money and watch the team and support the team than right now. This is true. Uh, but that's actually not directly related to, uh, to to challenging for trophies because if it was, then no one would ever have had any fun really supporting this club. So it's just just it isn't really that simple. It 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 doesn't mean you shouldn't hope for more progress and success. It doesn't mean you should dream about it. And but but I just sort of whenever I wander into Tottenham Twitter, my immediate and overwhelming feeling is that a reality check is massively needed here. Uh, I, I wonder if it's because we've had a few years now of Spurs being sort of bundled in with United and Liverpool and Chelsea and the rest in the so-called Big Six because Spurs did manage to break uh, free of that mid-table trough, let's call it that, the mid-table trough, uh, <clears throat> because they did manage to get out of that. And they've managed to bridge the financial gap a little bit. Uh, so they get b- b- bundled in with the Big Six. Maybe mentally people start thinking... Why isn't the club doing as well as the other teams in that group? To which my answer would always be money. Uh, like, but also, as a person who was alive in the 1990s, to me it feels much more relevant to compare Tottenham to like clubs like Everton and Villa and Leeds and like other mid-sized English clubs who had a golden era a long time ago, who were kind of left behind a bit when the financial realities of, of modern football developed and when the game really changed in the 90s. And, and for me, it makes more sense, based on the last couple of decades, to compare Spurs to those clubs and appreciate the, the good work that's been done for the club to rise above that level. Uh, it, that makes more sense than to look at Man United and the sort of newly minted Chelsea and Man City and be upset that you're not regularly performing better than those much wealthier clubs. That's just irrational to me, and you'd just never be happy if you look at it that way. I've seen Spurs described as underperforming this week, which is just nonsense. Like The, the single factor that most determines how well a club does is finances, specifically your ability to pay wages. And, and, and Spurs are one of the very few teams in, who have, in the last decade and a half, consistently overperformed in relation to their finances. That's just a fact. Yeah, look around the world. I mean, please get in touch and point out where I'm wrong about this, but look around the world. In which major uh, football uh, league do you have a team that has, like, this fifth or sixth highest budget that, like, regularly wins things? Like, it just doesn't happen. It's not how it works. Now, I completely understand that there's frustration that the club has uh, raised its level but not kicked on from there, you know? In, in broad terms, Tottenham managed to go from a team that mostly finished ninth or 10th to a club that then finished fifth a lot. And then they started getting fourth or better on like a semi-regular basis. And obviously what you're hoping from there is that the next step is to is to reach the top. And, and I think for a lot of Spurs fans of my generation, there was this sort of idea that once you get into the top four, then everything will be fine. If you get the Champions League money, immediately uh, triumph will follow. Because after the Champions League became a thing and became a very lucrative thing, the, the extra money from that competition meant we had four teams in the country that entered this sort of virtuous circle with initially Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea and Arsenal. The extra money from the Champions League meant that they could spend more money on players, 
which meant that they were more likely to retain their Champions League spot. And this process, year in, year out, uh, also increased their brand value, of course, and they ended up getting more fans from around the world, and they became more commercially attractive, which improved the finances even further. So it became a circular thing. And for clubs stuck outside of this little cartel, there was just this glass ceiling there, and it did feel for a time like it's just not going to be possible because there was to, 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 to overcome that because there was a match, massive catch-22 in order to challenge these uh, Champions League regulars. You needed a handful of, you know, the kind of elite players who would only go to a Champions League club to begin with. Uh, and if you did manage to find one, either a youngster or someone who was underrated, you realistically, you got one or two seasons out of that player before you were forced to sell them. So you just kind of stuck. Now, there were two clubs that managed to sort of break the wheel, uh, as, a, as a Game of Thrones character might put it. There was two clubs who broke the wheel, and the, the first one was Man City, like, no points for guessing how they did it, you know, when you, when you effectively have the, the effectively have the backing of a nation state, more or less, and, and you just spend however much you need to spend. Eventually, you'll get there unless you're totally incompetent. Uh, and, now, and, and the other team is Tottenham, who are not backed by a nation state, you may have noticed, but they managed to do it on their own steam. Uh, by assembling a young squad, by trying to sign stars of tomorrow before they were stars, by by selling and reinvesting. I mean, Tottenham had some of their best seasons in modern history after selling Luka Modric, after selling Gareth Bale. So, you know, sometimes actually losing your main star is, isn't the worst thing in the world that can happen because you do invest it further. You can make all the jokes you want about the post-Bale signings, but a few of them turned out to be pretty important players for the club. Point being, Spurs managed to elevate themselves by signing uh, younger players, by having a hugely important breakout star uh, d- d- turn up in from their own ranks in Harry Kane, and f- getting it right with a young, ambitious manager who was a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of his tactics and methods. So that group of players under that particular manager enabled Tottenham to overperform massively in relation to their finances for a few years. And during this period, they were able to build a new stadium, which will then help bridging the gap financially. And then, of course, being in the Champions League, what, six times in the last eight years or something, that will also help a lot financially. So I can understand that after a decade of being part of this top six, of being grouped in with these other top clubs, and you go to the new stadium and it looks fantastic, and you start thinking, okay, this is our level now. We're we're part of the big dogs. And you start comparing yourself to these other clubs, and you get angry that Tottenham don't win as much as Man City and Liverpool do. I understand the psychology of that and how that happens. But but I also just think it's a mistake to assume that this is now Tottenham's level forever and to take that for granted. One of the things that's helped Tottenham make the Champions League regularly has been, first of all, just the total mismanagement of Manchester United and the sort of post-Wenger instability at, at Arsenal. Now, now, sadly for Spurs, it looks like both of those factors are not going to be as helpful in the future. You know, it, it has often tended to be Arsenal and Man United, Spurs have finished above. Now, United are looking a lot less incompetent right now in terms of their decision-making. Arsenal are an interesting case. We'll be talking a lot about Arsenal this spring. Um, financially, Spurs and Arsenal are actually on very similar footing now. But while Spurs have wasted the last few years hiring these sort of big-name, short-term, high-maintenance managers who who haven't done what they were meant to do, Arsenal have done 
and you're going to hate this, but exactly what Tottenham did about 10 years ago. Like, I find this is a comparison that neither Arsenal fans or Tottenham fans like, but it's true. They've put together a team of, of players who are mostly under 25. They've unearthed a potential club legend from their own academy in, in, in Bukayo Saka. They've put faith in young players. They've been patient. They've, uh, well, comparatively patient for, for by modern football standards. They've put their faith in a young and ambitious manager, given him time to cook. This is exactly what Tottenham did at the beginning of this sort of uh, slightly golden era for them. Uh, and, uh, of course, crucially, and this is a big difference, it does look like Arsenal will be able to take it one step further and actually win the league, which Spurs obviously never did. Uh, either way, when Spurs have been making the top four recently, that has tended to be at the expense of Man United and Arsenal, and I'm not sure they can uh, budget on that happening regularly uh, for, for the next few years. And, of course... The next Man City could be heading our way in the shape of Saudi Newcastle. You know, we don't know for sure how much money the ownership will will keep plowing in, but we do know that hypothetically they can pay whatever they want and uh, whatever they manage to get through the Premier League spending rules anyway. I, I see lucrative sponsorship deals with Neom uh, or the Saudi airline or something uh, coming their way. So in addition to two Champions League rivals kind of getting their act together, Spurs have a new competitor that could potentially have unlimited spending power. Newcastle have a net spend of like $300 million in the last two seasons. I mean, if they continue doing that, they're going to have to be very badly run not to achieve some kind of success. All of which means any Tottenham fan who feel like because they've been semi-regulars in the Champions League for a period, they've reached the promised land, this is the club's level now and forever. I'm I'm afraid that the reality is it's about to become a lot harder just to get to that level every year. Uh, a sort of sober and realistic near-term prognosis for Spurs is that even with income from the new stadium, they're likely still going to be the fifth or sixth ranked club in the league financially. And, and with Newcastle's potential spending power there, effectively Spurs will be sixth or seventh. And I, again... I, I do worry that Tottenham in a few years will look back on this period when people could take top four for granted and being in the Champions League for granted and, and thought that's not really a big deal. And they had the luxury of being able to complain, oh, top four isn't actually that good. I want a trophy. Uh, I wonder if we'll look back on that period and think, actually, those were pretty good times. Uh, because um, if you're the seventh most powerful team in the league financially finishing in the four top spots regularly is a really difficult thing to do now it sounds like i'm being very negative here very negative about Spurs, but actually this is just how the situation is like this is a, a sober and fact-based assessment of where tottenham are as a football club in 2023 now that might sound very negative but it also means that in a sense i'm a lot more positive than others because i just cannot look at tottenham and go this is a scandal why haven't we finished above man city like why aren't we spending more than man united sack the board like half of the internet seems to be saying this and, and it's just a totally delusional way of looking at it when i go and watch tottenham games now uh, you know, you're watching Harry Kane and Son and the rest, and and you think, and I just think, you know what? It's not that long ago I was watching Timothy Atuba and Noé Pamaro and all these weirdos, and, and and Tottenham now have a World Cup winning captain of France or ex captain of France in goal when he's healthy, um, probably needs replacing, but you know the point stands. They 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 have a World Cup winning defender next to a defender with 49 caps from England for England, whatever you think of Eric Dyer. You know, they've got Brazil's number nine on the bench, mostly, because he can't get in the team. You've got England's record goal scorer playing next to possibly the best Asian player in history up front. And I just can't look at that and go, whoa, these are dark days for Tottenham, you know? Dark day, you know what dark days look like? That was watching Gregor Raziak 
or like bringing in Andy Booth. Like that was dark. 2004, finishing 14th, losing literally every other game with a team where, like, Rowan Ricketts and Helder Postigo were regulars. That was bad. Like, this isn't bad. That was bad. Uh, but what it has been this season, it's been no fun. It's been no fun at all. And this is part of why I've massively had it with Antonio Conte now. Because as much as this isn't, historically speaking, a terrible season or a terrible situation for Spurs... It's been no fun, I'm repeating myself, but the football has been turgid and cowardly, and Conte, as much as he likes to blame everyone else, has just not done a very good job this season. And the normal caveat here is that, yes, he's had a terrible year off the pitch, uh, losing friends, uh, having to have a serious operation. Obviously, we sympathise with that, but it doesn't really excuse his behaviour totally, I don't think. If he'd have said... Now, if his sort of public message was, listen, it's been a difficult season for me, for us, we lost a very important member of the coaching staff. We've had some injuries at at, at bad moments. Uh, we went through some. We went through a three months in the winter where we kept losing games due to like crazy individual errors. That was very frustrating. Like tactically, if you, my approach hasn't always worked. I mean, he's never going to admit that, but it's the truth. Uh, but if but all of that being said, I, I believe in this team. I believe in these players. We're going to do everything we can to finish the season well. And when we go again next season, if that's what Conte was saying, I think people would buy that. I think people would have sympathy for his uh, difficult situation. I think people would give him the benefit of the doubt due to his past success. But of course, he's not saying that. You know, what he's saying is, everyone are, everyone are terrible. I'm too good for this. They've all let me down. None of this is my fault. I shouldn't even be here. How can I possibly get results against teams like Wolves and Southampton and Sheffield United with this bunch of losers is, is basically what Conte is saying. And I have no sympathy for that at all. Because they're actually not that bad. This team isn't that bad. Just, I mean, should we, when we're going on a bit now, but should we look at the team that played against Southampton? These very selfish players? That's another thing. The selfish players, you're like, ah, oh, the players are selfish. Well, mate, you pick the same ones every week. So these, these uh, really bad and selfish players who are terrible, you seem to pick them every single week. And maybe the ones on the bench are even worse. Uh, that, 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 of course, could be true. Maybe worth trying them if they're just a, a bunch of idiots, the ones that you start every single week. Uh, but, but looking at the team against Southampton, okay, Harry Kane, probably not the problem. You have Son Yun Min, who was the actual Premier League top scorer last season, who scored 17 in the league before that and has been in double figures in the league for six seasons straight. Maybe it's if he's just dropping his worst season uh, <laughs> in over half a decade. Maybe the manager should ask himself why that's happening under my watch. Why all these other people in charge of Spurs has gotten more out of Sun than I am. Eh, some introspection might be might be worth it there. You've got Richarlison, who the coach wanted, who the club spent seventy million on, but but who you've left on the bench for most of the season. Conte was complaining recently that you have too many nice players, you know, too many good guys. You got you signed Rich Allison for all the money in the world, and you don't use him. I don't think you get to complain about that. Then that you have a fighter there, you just won't put him on the pitch. You have Pedro Porro, who the club is now spending forty million on this summer or something, who who won the league with Sporting fairly, fairly recently. That was the first time Sporting won the league in twenty years. Not sure he's some sort of feckless simpleton. You know, Heiberg is there. He has some flaws to his game, sure, but is he a is he a selfish player who doesn't sacrifice himself for the team? Not the first thing I would say about him. Now. Cristiano Romero, bit of a lunatic, but an actual World Cup winner. So, so, so some pedigree there. Clément Langlais was a regular when Barcelona won La Liga a couple of years ago. Ben Davis and Eric Dyer, 
have both been important players in Tottenham teams that were a lot better than this. So so either Antonio Conte is saying that all of this is Oliver Skip's fault, which seems harsh. Maybe Skip Davies and Dyer at a push. I'm just not buying it. Like this this team has a lot more in it than he is currently able to get out of them. I'm just not accepting that this is a squad of players that is inherently incapable of playing better than they've done recently. You know, when Spurs had, I think this was the moment for me, when they had 90 minutes to overturn a one-goal lead against Milan, and you set up the team to just sit a sit-back for the entire first half, just wasting half the time you've got at your disposal. Is that something that happens because the team is full of, like, effete weaklings? Or is that maybe because you've got a manager in charge who hasn't won a knockout game in the Champions League since 2013, and maybe there's a reason for that, and sometimes he just gets things wrong? Wonder if that is a more likely solution here, right? Eh? Has, has any Tottenham player improved at all in the last 12 months? Are anyone getting better under the guidance of, of this coach? I, I don't think so. And, and of course, Conte is someone who, throughout his career, has gotten a lot of credit for instilling a, a strong winning mentality in his team. Oh. But, but you can't have it both ways. If you're going to get credit for when your teams show a strong mentality, you can't just say, oh, well, this isn't me. This is not my fault. They're, they're all weak when they don't. You know, if you're going to give Conte a free pass for this situation here because you think the players are all mentally deficient, which I don't agree with, by the way, but if you think that, fair enough. But then you also can't give him much credit for the mentality shown by his, the other teams he's been in charge of because it's clearly all about the players' inherent ability anyway. Nothing to do with him. You've you got to be consistent with this stuff, at least. So... <laughs> Should we do that? Maybe that's a rant for another day, the whole winning mentality thing. It's it's such a lazy thing that I think us in the media are very guilty of. If a team wins a game, oh, look, winning mentality. And if they lose for whatever reason, it's like, oh, no, bad mentality, bunch of losers. It's it's. it's I'm, I'm sure there are mental qualities and characteristics that are more desirable to have in your players. And if you have more of those players in your squad, then you're more likely to win stuff. But we were so lazy with like labeling certain teams as winners and other teams as losers you know what the teams that have winning mentality they tend also to be the richest teams in the league they're playing in it's funny how that goes anyway this this is I mean, this is dragging on a lot the main point i wanted to get at this being the tottenham manager it's a difficult gig spurs have closed the gap with the biggest clubs financially but there's still a gap there uh, they're still trying to compete with clubs that can spend a lot more than them i was checking the sort of the 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 Swiss Ramble files on this Swiss Ramble the uh, excellent excellent uh, football uh, finance blogger and who always checks his numbers and, and does good work uh, in, in 2022 Tottenham's wage bill was 209 million whereas Chelsea spent 342 Manchester City 352 Man United 384 Liverpool 368 so you're trying to compete with players that can spend like 75% more than you that's how the maths works out it's not fully twice as much like you're spending around 200 million they can all spend at least 150 more like that is a difficult thing to do it's not impossible but it's difficult and it does require that you need to think outside the box a little bit uh you, you can't just go oh we need to buy more stars who have winning mentalities it's like it's just not going to be possible for you i'm sorry you need to find some some other way and the best example of how it's possible to do it is is Arsenal right now. And again, Tottenham fans will not enjoy hearing this, but it's true. Spurs have, have overtaken Arsenal just about in terms of finances, mostly because Arsenal have been out of the Champions League and Spurs have been in it. Uh, so, so that's going to pivot back. But 
Arsenal have shown that if you sign young players who are on the up, you get a number of them right at the same time. You find the right manager to mold them, to lead them. You give them some time to work. You can punch above your weight. You can have this incredible season that they're having now. There's no sort of structural reason why it would be impossible for for Tottenham to have the season that Arsenal are having now. It's probably not possible for Tottenham to build the kind of team that Man City can put together because that's just how the industry works. But the kind of incredible thing that Arsenal are doing right now, you you can do, and you can and you can't go on about mentality because last season this is a team that completely bottled it towards the end of the uh, of the Champions League uh, running and the fight for fourth. You know they had a couple of really bad defeats that you know that I think was an element of mental of mental stuff. Like the, the, the they looked really nervous and insecure in those games. Same bunch of players are now just running away with the league almost, or certainly heading towards the title. So that that's the winning mentality for you, huh? It's, it's, <laughs> having good players, it's it's good. And and, and and the incredible thing is they're doing it by using more or less the exact formula that Spurs followed about 10 years ago when they first managed to, to improve themselves. There's, there's a lot of opportunities there for Tottenham. Tottenham cannot spend as much as City or Chelsea, but they can spend a hell of a lot more than a lot of other teams in the league and around the world. So you can't go out and sign ready-made stars all the time, but what you can do is you can sign most of the most promising, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-olds in the world. There's, there's a couple of exceptions players that you know have already made enough of a name for themselves that they might aim higher but vast majority of the most promising young players in the world Tottenham can attract and I suspect the thinking behind the sort of Mourinho Conte appointments was that Tottenham they've lifted themselves to the point when the champion when they're in the Champions League and Levy probably thought one of these sort of proven winners will be what's needed to take them across the line in terms of actually winning things. I mean, you can understand that way of thinking. I also wonder if they've been trying to placate Harry Kane a little bit, trying to show him that, you know, look, we're being very ambitious. Look at this very shiny manager we've just hired. But I just think that's a mistake. I think because as much as Tottenham have moved up in the world, the job is still to try to finish above teams that can spend more money than you. And I don't think you can do that by hiring sort of short-term managers who have no patience for building anything, who can't handle adversity, as we've seen, who start setting fire to everything when things go against them. You can't build a successful team with people like that in charge when that's what you have to do. And I think it's also a huge mistake to hire a manager who's taking a step down or certainly feels he's taking a step down by taking this, taking the job. Like Whoever Spurs appoints, I think it needs to be someone who's more excited by the possibilities at that club than annoyed by the limitations, right? The last two serious managerial appointments have been two managers who clearly did not want to be there, who weren't up for the challenge of trying to build something that, that, that might take a bit of time to put together, but can become more than the sum of its parts. And I think it's important that they don't make that mistake again. Without going into specific names, that can be a different pod maybe, but like, I think it's important that it's someone who's not like doing the club a favor by being there. We've had quite enough of that. And rather someone who sees, you know, this is a club where you can really do something um, rather than that's the, the, oh my God, like we can't spend money like Man City. is like, no, of course you can't. <laughs> Get over it. You're at the wrong club if that's what you want to do. I also, I wonder if the Harry Kane of it all has kind of warped the club's thinking a little bit. The idea that, like I said, you have this great player, but you might not have him for all that much longer. So you appoint a big shiny name. That's one thing to kind of convince him that you're serious. And I don't think that's a good way to run a football club. Again, Arsenal is the example here. If Tottenham had signed guys like Ben White and Aaron Ramsdale and like Lokonga and Tomiyasu, like Arsenal did last summer... 
can you imagine like the the whinging from fans just like, oh there's no ambition you know oh we're signing these guys like, the, 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 not just fans i mean media commentators would be saying the same thing but sometimes you have to trust people a little bit and and you know arsenal weren't great last season sometimes that kind of reset requires you to take a little bit of a step back and accept that sometimes things take time Anyway, I've gone off track a little bit now. I've done this in a while. You know, it's hard to be disciplined when you have many things to say. Uh, it does look like Antonio Conte is on his way out, should be on his way out, certainly. He clearly doesn't want to be there. The players, it's hard to imagine the players being too keen at this point with him, uh, you know, being so abundantly clear that the, these players who, you know, tried their best for him in the last sort of 18 months that he thinks they're all losers. <laughs> Probably not good for the relationship between between manager and squad it's fairly transparent that this is a guy who just hasn't been able to get a tune out of this team and is now trying to blame everyone else Uh, I have very little sympathy for that it's certainly not something the club should be paying him 15 million years to be doing they should try to find a way out of that contract probably will have to pay him the rest of the money I guess that's how it works it really is a really is one of those jobs football you know, when a manager gets sacked, you know, there's some segments of the media is like, oh no, they have sacked the manager. Oh, and it's like, it feels like when the queen died, everyone has to lower their voice, but they have sacked the manager. It's the only job in the world, presumably, where you like, if you do a bad job, you get paid lots of money to go on holiday. It'd be fantastic. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Now, typically at this juncture on the pod, towards the end, we would have a uh, betting uh, segment where I look at a game or something related to what we've talked about. Uh, that I like, but of course it is International Week. I do occasionally <clears throat> dabble. I do occasionally look at international football, and we might do that in the future. But I think it's really difficult right now when the teams haven't played uh, in a long time. I don't really know what they look like. Maybe the second batch of games in this international break, it'll be more possible to look at it. But right now, I think it's really, really difficult. Um, some outrights, maybe. I mean, we've spoken about Tottenham. They are currently at 275 at Betson to make the top four, which seems like a low price to me. Maybe I'm just being very negative because it's been a negative uh, week in general with the whole Conte circus happening. But I, I honestly think it's... Um, I, I have more f- got belief that Liverpool could could do it than the Tottenham can do it. So that Liverpool price at 325 with Betson to make the Champions League. Yeah, I know they just lost to Bournemouth. They weren't terrible in that game. I think out of the teams, you know, Newcastle, Tottenham, Liverpool, Liverpool are the the ones with the highest ceiling, put it that way, but their floor is slightly worrying at times, and they do seem to have a bit of a glass jaw. Newcastle at uh, 2.10 are, you know, the team that the the bookmakers fancy to to take the the last spot there. Um, And and after picking up a few results again, you know, they looked a little bit sharper in the last two games. Alexander Isak starting to find his feet. I mean, Isak, we know historically, is a very streaky player, so the fact that he's now scored uh, a couple of goals maybe suggests that he's about to come into some form at a very good time in the season for Newcastle. I, I do think New- Newcastle are the most likely. I think 2.10 isn't that super interesting price, but uh, could, could could be worth a punt. In terms of the outrights to win the league, you might have heard me say it in this pod. I do think Arsenal are going to do it now. I think there were two things this weekend that really 
yeah, made up my mind. I mean, there have been twists and turns in the season, but there were two things. First of all, was Arsenal going out of the Europa League, which I think was very good for them. Secondly, was just how easily they sort of swatted aside Crystal Palace. You know, Palace obviously just sacked uh, Patrick Vieira. They're not in a good place. But, you know, they lost just 1-0 to Brighton, 1-0 to City. They held Liverpool to a 0-0 draw, got a draw against Brentford, got a draw against Brighton before that, held Newcastle, held Manchester United. So, so Palace have been sort of difficult to beat, and, and Arsenal just swatted them aside. You know that that performance was so impressive from them, even if Palace aren't the best team in the world. So I, I think the combination of just the ease with which they thwacked Palace and going out of the Europa League kind of made up my mind a little bit. I do think it's going to happen now, but of course it seems to have made up the the betting market's mind a little bit as well after it being very close between them for a very long time. The uh, price for Arsenal winning is one sixty, whereas Man City are at two thirty five now. 160 is maybe a little bit lower than I would want it to to to, to play that as as a bet, but I do think they will win it now. Uh, Arsenal. Um, I have some feelings on that as well, but maybe that can be in next episode or some other episode. We will get to that. But we are back. The resource is open, and uh, and thanks for still having me in your podcast device thing, in spite of the sort of sick leave. And the, and, and, and the resort being closed and in, in quarantine and all of that. But here we go. Um, the, yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. <laughs>